Would you pray with me again as we come to the word this morning? Lord Jesus, just those words just keep going through my head. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. You reign in this place. As my prayer has been all morning, may may your kingdom come, may your will be done in our midst this morning. You say in your word there's something powerful about your people gathering together. You will make your presence known when we're gathered together in a way that's unlike any other. God, we need that this morning. Would you make your presence and your power known? Would you speak to us through your word? Would you work to transform our hearts this morning that the people that walk out are different from the people that walked in? God, we ask for a miracle of your presence and the transformation that it brings. Come, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our, as we were reminded last week, slow march through the book of Mark. Uh, That keeps coming up. I'm starting to get a theme as I talk to people that, yeah, it's been a little bit. Uh, And it's going to be a little bit, but I'm loving it, so hopefully you are too. Uh, As we continue in the book of Mark, we're in Mark chapter 14 uh, on Jesus' last day of earthly ministry, transitioning into it. And uh, we find ourselves the end of the week, uh, his Passion Week, and they're preparing for the celebration of the Passover. So if you would join me in Mark 14, starting in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him wherever he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room for me to eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they were prepared to Passover. So here's the thing. There's, There's some cultural things happening here that we don't, easily grasp uh, in 21st century American culture. Uh, Most of us have never celebrated a Passover. Most of us don't have a rabbi that we follow around day to day. And so some of these things you can kind of miss, but they add something to the story to understand them a little better. Uh, Passover was one of the greatest feasts and celebrations that the nation of Israel had. It was kind of their Christmas. It was one of the ones that they looked forward to the most. And then there was the Day of Atonement, which maybe was like their Easter. Certain certain feasts and festivals were kind of elevated above other ones. And Passover was one of their big ones. And so Jerusalem was filled with people from all over the known world who had traveled back so that they could celebrate the Passover close to the temple. And one of the things is if you were a disciple of a rabbi, if you had a teacher that you followed around, on the, the first day uh, of unleavened bread, that was a, another festival that they were celebrating, your rabbi would put on a Passover meal for you. Uh, they would call it a Seder. And it was something that he would kind of lead his people through, and, and they would have looked forward to it. I mean, they come to Jesus at the beginning and they say, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover? Like, we, we love this. This is one of our favorite times of the year. Where do you want us to go and prepare this? And I just want to take a moment here 
There, sometimes there's something in a story that if you're really paying attention will kind of catch you. And if you put yourself in the place of the disciples, listen to the instructions that Jesus gives them. Go into the city. A man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, where is the guest room for me to eat the Passover with my disciples? So Jesus, where do you want us to go so that we can prepare the Passover? They're expecting, go to the, the well, take a left, go past the synagogue, third door on the right. They know you're coming, don't sweat it. But what they get is, go into town, you're going to see a man carrying a water jug, follow him home. Once he gets home, go up to the guy that owns the house and go, hey, where's the room? We're going to eat the Passover, we need a room, where is it? These are weird instructions. The disciples had to be sitting there. It was about a week ago in their life that Jesus told them, go steal me a donkey. You remember that one? Go, go in and take a donkey. But don't worry, if anybody asks, just tell them the teacher needs it and they'll be fine. And they were like, oh my gosh. Like, you get your hands cut off for stealing a donkey. Like, you get crucified for, for thievery. And Jesus says, go steal me a donkey. But they went. And they found it exactly as he said. People came out and said, hey, where are you going with our donkey? And they said, the, the teacher needs it? And they said, oh, okay, no problem. So they have to be looking at each other going, this is a donkey thing, isn't it? Like, imagine if you're the guy carrying the water jug. You're a servant in a house, go get some water. And all of a sudden, there's these two kind of burly fellows following you home. You got a little pep in your step. Oh, God. <laughs> I've seen this before. It doesn't go well. If I take this next left and they follow me, I know they're coming after me. He takes the left. They keep coming. It goes into the house. Master, there's some guys. They were following me. They smelled like fish. That's all I know. Like, I don't know where this goes. But the disciples did as Jesus asked. And I never want to miss the last verse. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and they found it just as he had told them. If you follow Jesus for any length of times, this is a little side note. He's going to ask you to do some weird things. He's going to ask you to talk to people that you wouldn't normally talk to. He's going to ask you to give some things away that you wouldn't normally give away or whatever it may be. And in those times, you're going to have to go, am I crazy? Is, it, is this really what I'm supposed to do? And stories like this just encourage my heart so much. Because where the Lord leads, the Lord provides. They went and they found it exactly as he had told them. Did God come to the guy uh, who owns the house in a dream one night and go, hey, uh, next Friday, you're going to have some guy show up. Have the room ready. Like, we don't know. We're not told how God orchestrated this all. But the disciples got some crazy sounding instructions. But they trusted Jesus and they found it exactly as he had planned. So that's a little side note. But all of this is surrounding the Passover, is surrounding that evening's meal, a Seder. I, I want to kind of walk you through a, a little bit of a Seder. How many of you in here have ever been a part of a Seder? Okay, about a third of us. Uh, it, it's a really, it's a neat experience. It's an interesting thing. Uh, it's still practiced to this day uh, by Jewish people. The whole point of this meal, and we're going to walk through some of the pieces of it, is the meal is actually a storytelling device. Uh, God gave them these instructions to have this meal in a very specific way so that each element of the meal helped them tell a story. 
the story of how God had moved for the first time in Israel's uh, history and in some of the greatest ways that we've ever seen on earth. Uh, The whole thing about the Passover, as Brian alluded to it a little bit last week, it's the story of God moving uh, to bring Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Very quickly, uh, uh, history on that. So Israel has been slaves, captives in Egypt for about 400 years. Uh, And the way they're treated is, there's probably nothing like it in the world today. Uh, Has anyone ever actually been to like the pyramids in Egypt? I never have. I've just seen pictures. And even just the pictures, you go, how? How thousands of years ago did they build these incredible things? And to be honest, science today, we still don't know. What we know is you can accomplish a lot with with an army of slave labor. They had slaves from all over the world, Israel being one of them, and they were put to the most grueling work. You find uh, in the Old Testament the stories of them having to just make bricks all day long and the taskmasters that would beat and whip them if they didn't meet these quotas and just an incredibly hard time. And it says that God hears the cries of his people. And so he raises up a guy named Moses. And if you have ever seen the Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston, that's all that goes through my head as I read that story. Charlton Heston is Moses to me. And God raises up Moses and through this long uh, series of events, finally brings him before Pharaoh. And what what does Moses tell Pharaoh? What does Charlton Heston tell Pharaoh? Let my people go. And it's like, yeah, it's such a cool scene in the movie. But essentially, Pharaoh says, no. And so God gives Moses the ability to perform some signs and wonders that at first, Pharaoh has some guys who, like, through their kind of witchcraft, they're able to kind of mimic them and and do some very similar signs. And so Pharaoh kind of laughs him off. Moses comes back a third time, a fourth time. Finally, by the fifth time, nobody's able to recreate what God is doing. Let my people go. And Pharaoh starts to kind of bargain and go, okay, you can take the men, but leave all the women and children. And that's not what we said. You're not in charge here, Pharaoh. And God would remind Pharaoh again with, with uh, kind of increasing signs and wonders. They go through this 10 times until eventually Moses comes and goes, Pharaoh, you're out of chances. If you don't let God's people go, he's going to send a destroying angel to kill the firstborn of everyone in this nation, human, animal, across the board. Pharaoh, please, let God's people go. And Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no, I won't do it. So God also gives Moses instructions for the people of God, for the Israelites. They're to have this meal that they're going to remember. They're to take a lamb, to slaughter the lamb, and to roast it and share it among themselves but to take the blood of the lamb and to put it over the doorposts of their home. Because God told Moses, any house that that this angel comes to that has blood over the doorpost, he will pass over. He'll go to the next house and the firstborns in that house won't be harmed. And so they have this meal and it's kind of like described as like, Man, you like have everything ready when you're eating it. Like you can't even like don't have a bag packed in the other room. Have it with you while you're eating because this is your farewell meal. Like you're going to eat this and then leave Egypt. The angel comes and does exactly as God said he would do. And he kills the firstborn of everything in Egypt except the Israelite people that had blood over their doorposts. That next morning, Pharaoh wakes up and there's, there's mourning and wailing all throughout the nation. 
He calls Moses and he says, take your people and go. I've had enough. I quit. Get out. He later changes his mind and gets an army and chases them down. But that's a whole other story. But it's this kind of terrible story of God escalating things until finally Pharaoh would do what he said he, he needed to do. But also it's this beautiful story of God protecting and redeeming his people, bringing them out of slavery. And so he told them, once a year, have a Passover meal, a Seder, and tell this story. I I don't want people to ever forget what I have done for the nation of Israel. And so he set this up as an ongoing feast and celebration. And really the, the big piece, again, was this is a storytelling device because the next generation needs to know what God has done. By the time Jesus is here, it's been somewhere in the ballpark of 1,500 years since God did that, and they're still telling the story because God said every generation needs to hear what I've done for the nation of Israel. I have taken them from slavery to freed men. There's a, much, there's a very checkered past from everything that came after that, but they have to remember that I'm the God who redeemed them. And so every piece of food had symbolism to it. A couple examples. They would eat bitter herbs, uh, often horseradish. Has anyone ever just chomped down on horseradish? That'll wake you up in the morning. If you're ever having sinus problems, just get a spoonful of horseradish and go for it. You, You won't even have sinuses anymore, let alone problems with them. Part of their meal was they would eat these bitter herbs. And it was to remind them of how bitter things were when we were in slavery. They would eat these things. God, God said, I don't just want you to know the story. I want you to kind of really remember, to experience it a little bit. Every time you taste something bitter, to go, man, how bitter it must have been to be under the whips of the taskmasters. They, they would make this uh, paste from fruit and nuts. And it was to remind them of the mortar that they used to have to make when they were building Pharaoh's kingdom and just what grueling work it was. They would eat roast lamb that was to remind them of the lamb that was slain to provide redemption for them, to provide the Passover. And actually, this day is specific. If you caught it at the beginning of uh, our passage this morning in Mark 14, 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb, no one around here saw the foreshadowing. We know where the story is going But it was on this day that they celebrated the Passover lamb, and it was on this day that the true Passover lamb was about to be sacrificed. Another part of this meal is they would have four cups of wine that would be drank uh, at specific periods throughout this meal. And each of them was meant uh, to represent one of the four expressions of deliverance promised by God. Uh, In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 to 8, Therefore, tell all the Israelites, I am Yahweh. I will deliver you from the forced labor of Egypt, uh, excuse me, of the Egyptians, and free you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. 
So at, at four very specific times throughout the meal, they would stop and they would all drink the cup of wine. And first they would say, I will deliver you. God has promised to deliver us. And it would, drinking that cup of wine together would help them remember, he's our deliverer. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. And I will bring you into the land that I have swore to you. And so they had these very specific things meant to tell the story and remind them of what God had done. And also it would build up hope each time they would do it of how is he going to fulfill it? Because Israel was looking at the time and going, well, we're not slaves to Egypt anymore, but now we got Rome and that's not great. God is still our deliverer. He's still our redeemer. He's still taking us as a people and he still wants to bring us into the fulfillment of his promises. And so it helped them to look back and it helped them to look forward all at the same time. And so as disciples come to him and say, Jesus, where are we going to do it? He gives them instructions. They go and they get everything ready. And picking up in verse 17, when evening came, he arrived with the 12. And while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, I assure you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, surely not I, this surely not I, like in a lot of other translations, it's a little more accurately translated. Is it me? Like Jesus says, one of you is going to betray you. One of you who is sitting and eating this meal with me, and they one by one go around going, it, it's not me though, is it? Is he talking about me? Like, because they know Jesus knows some stuff. He's told them some things are going to happen, and then when it does happen, their minds are kind of blown, and now he says, one of you is going to betray me. And each and every one of them is sent searching their own heart. Is he talking about me? Jesus, are you talking about me? Certainly I wouldn't do that. One by one, they go around. Surely not I. He said to them, it's one of the 12, the one who is dipping bread with me in the bowl. For the son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So let me just back up a little bit and let me ask this question and I actually want response. One of the things we do, if you're newer here, uh, is we actually talk uh, during the messages. I am not the only one that the Lord can speak to or through. Uh, he can speak through you as well. And so I just want to ask this question. Why is Jesus telling them that he knows he's going to be betrayed? Like J Jesus never wasted words. Why did he take the time at this meal? Like this was the time to go, yeah, and the bitter herbs and slavery. And, you know, why was he going into one of you are going to betray me? It, it was, he knew it was going to happen. It was already going to happen. Why take this time with the disciples to point it out? One of you is going to betray me. Why do that? Yeah, so kind of that, 
one day they're going to look back and they're going to remember that I said it would happen and then when it did, and they're going to kind of go, whoa. Like, he, he even knew it was coming. Everything he says is true. You know, so for that kind of reaction for them. Any other reasons why Jesus would have stopped and pointed that out? Okay. Part of it was he putting Judas on blast. You're not getting one past me. Like, I know what you're up to, Judas. Okay? What else? Okay, so this certainly would have gotten their attention of we're doing things different this year. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think, though, that you all already said, they all searched their hearts. Mm. I, think it, I think that God always gives us those, those times. Yeah. Is it, is it me? Right. I need to look inside. Am I doing this? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, something to the power of even bringing, even the disciples who, we know the story. We know that Judas was already looking for a way to betray him. But there's even power in, in Peter and James and John going, am I even capable of that? So, I mean, we see later Peter fully believes he's not. Uh, Peter will make a bit of a fool of himself next week. But it brings him to that point of having to question and go, surely not me though, right, Jesus? I would, would I? Casey? Yeah, this would encourage the disciples later when he was actually gone to go, wait, 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 he said something about this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, he knew it was coming. I, I, two of the, the main reasons uh, that I found as I've just been praying through this this week, one of which we've already touched on here, Jesus was showing off a bit of foreknowledge and obedience. He, he wanted to make it very clear, as many of you have said, this is not a surprise. Like I, I know that this is coming, and like, I'm, I'm not going to shirk my responsibility. I'm not going to weasel my way out. He wasn't going to play the Messiah card. And there had been other times when the crowds had come to get him, and it says that Jesus just kind of walked through the crowd and got away. There, there's some crazy things, but he's going, I'm, I'm accepting this one. He, he said in verse 21, for the Son of Man will, will go just as it's written about him. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a couple different references to the Messiah when he comes and what kind of man he will be and, and what to expect. And the most famous is Isaiah 53. Uh, if you, at the top of your chapter heading there, it probably says suffering servant. And it goes like this. 
He grew up before them like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sufferings and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. We held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. Jesus knew the scriptures, and honestly, so did they. And he was going, look, it's what's going to happen. My betrayal, my crucifixion. You've all been told it was going to happen, and I'm, I'm playing along. This is the plan. I'm going to go just as it was written, but I also want you to know I know what's coming. And here's an important piece. I face it willingly. Jesus in John chapter 10 told his disciples this, this is why the father loves me because I am laying down my life so I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. The plan is for me to be betrayed and to go to my death. And he's going to go into the communion piece that Casey was talking about and kind of explain what his death means for them. But he's going, this is the Father's plan. And I want you to know when it happens, I not only knew about it, I willingly went along. I laid down my own life. I don't want you to think that the crowd that's coming later tonight is too strong for me and I just had no choice I have willingly made this choice, just as it was written, to take away the sin of my people. There is power in them knowing this. The disciples would continue to come back to this all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. They're continually looking back at this and going, he chose that. It wasn't that Judas was just so crafty, he had no choice. He chose that for me. And they would tell other people, he chose that for you. There's power in that. I think one of the other reasons behind Jesus calling this out with his disciples is I think it was an opportunity for repentance. I think that in this, there was also a, Judas, this is your last chance. We, we know, I, I know what you've done. We both know where this is going to lead. Come clean. I, I think Jesus would have been overcome with joy had Judas just said, Lord, it was me. I was out of my mind. I don't know what I was doing. I, I told them that I'm looking for a time to, to hand you over to them. It was me. I'm so sorry. We know, because it's God's sovereign will, Jesus still would have gone to the cross. But I think he would have been overjoyed at the repentance of Judas. We know the story, and even the name Judas. People all throughout the New Testament would change their name from Judas. they go, no, 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 just call me Jude. Because to even be associated with Judas was like, oh, that guy. 
And, and we've kind of, we read that in at times as if like, man, Jesus must have hated Judas. Jesus was going, look, to the one who betrays me, before you even do it, you need to know it would have been better had you not been born if you go through with this. There's, there's a plea there, don't do it. Not for his sake, not because Jesus is going, man, because I really don't want to go lay down my life. That decision had been made. But Judas, don't do it. Like, like a parent with their child. Have you ever gotten the call from school? You know what happened that day, but your kid comes home, and you don't just hit him over the head with it. What's the first thing you do? How was school today? Anything you want to talk about? Anything happen that maybe we need to talk about? Because there is power in creating space for your child to come to you, right? It's one thing to be caught. It's another thing for them to come and go, I don't know if you would ever find out, but I just need to tell you. I got in a fight at school today. I talked back to my teacher, whatever it might be. It hurts, you know, as a parent. And you still have to deal with it, but there's something powerful in having them come to you. And I think Jesus was offering the same thing to Judas. Jesus loved Judas as much as he loved Mary. Jesus desired repentance for Judas as much as he desired it for Peter. It says that it's God's will that all should come to faith and none should perish, even Judas. I think there's a brokenheartedness to Jesus who has known the whole time what Judas is doing. We found, you know, he steals from the money bag and he does all this different stuff. Jesus has known the whole time and I think there's a brokenheartedness. Don't do it, Judas. One of you is going to betray me. Is there anything you'd like to tell me? And it says shortly after this, Judas got up and walked out to go and betray him. We find in the other gospels. And I think that broke Jesus' heart. So as they were eating, the disciples have to be going, oh good, we're getting back to the Seder. This is my favorite part. The way that Jesus puts on a Seder, it's almost like he was there the way he tells the story, I love this part. Some of them would have seen this two, maybe three times at this point by following Jesus. Finally, we're getting back to the meal. He took the bread, blessed and broke it. He gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. I'm, I'm sorry, Jesus, you skipped the bitter herbs. Like that, that's not, we don't go to bread next, what? Then he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. And so they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many. I assure you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in the kingdom of God. After singing psalms, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So before we get to kind of some of the deeper theological stuff, I don't want to miss the last line. After singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Can you imagine singing worship songs with Jesus? Like, don't blow by that. I've, I've been in the room with like some pretty just gifted worship leaders. You know, when, when they start playing a guitar and singing, it's like you're kind of ushered into God's throne room and his presence is just almost palpable. Can you imagine singing psalms with Jesus? Singing the scriptures back to God with God himself on earth. We skip it because it's just a couple words and we know that there's some weighty things on, on either end. But to sing worship songs with Jesus, 
was an incredible gift that these guys missed, probably until about a month later, and then went, whoa, that's why it was so different. That catches me every time I read it. But on to the deeper theological issues. So as they're expecting the Seder, and again, it was a ritual meal. There was a very specific flow to it. Jesus takes the bread. One of the closest things we have to their unleavened bread would be tortilla. And he blesses it, and he holds it up, and he breaks it. He hands it to them, and he says, take it. This is my body. And they would be on this ripped up piece of bread, they would have all taken off a piece. This is your body? But this is torn and broken, Jesus. And this is a fundamental truth. Your body is right there. You're still sitting here. What? They would have completely missed what was happening. This is my body. My body will be broken in your place. Just as this bread is ripped and torn, my body will be ripped and torn for you. And not only one day you're going to need to remember this, but Jesus would tell his disciples, I want you to know right now so that when it happens, you find comfort. Again, no one takes my life. I give it up myself. My body will be broken for you. The punishment that we deserve was placed on him. He knew it. He willingly accepted it. Every nail, every whip, every fist, every thorn was meant for us, each and every one of us. And we stand here this morning, if I can encourage you just to say, and I deserved it. And he took it, his body, ripped, beaten, broken for us. And then he gets the cup and he blesses it and he passes it around and they take a drink and he says, this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many. Remember the meanings of the cup that they were expecting at a Seder. I will bring you out. I will deliver. I will redeem. I will take you as my people. And Jesus goes, my blood is going to fulfill all of that and actually start a new covenant. Matthew 5, 17, again, Jesus teaching, this is probably two years before. And he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, to just sweep them under the rug and go, yeah, those are dumb. We don't need those anymore. But I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. In my blood is the fulfilled promises of God. Through my blood, you will be delivered. You will be redeemed. You will be brought out and you will be taken as my people Old covenant, put a stamp on it, done. And I will create a new covenant based on my blood. When they heard the words new covenant, these were good Jewish boys. They knew their Torah. They would have thought of the prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will take, or excuse me, when I will make a new covenant with my people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jesus says that the covenant you've been waiting for since Jeremiah, it's going to be established in my blood. Because of my blood, I will forgive your wickedness and I will remember your sins no more. And you're not going to have to teach one another, basically convince them, hey, follow the Lord. He says, those that are part of my family will know me. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will have my law on their minds. I will write it on their hearts. Jesus' new covenant is the forgiveness of sins and restored relationship with the Father through trust in his sacrifice. When we come to communion now, it can be this kind of rote thing that we just do because, yeah, it's, we do it once a month here at this church and the little thing of bread and the juice, and that's just what we do. But it's, it's very much like a Seder. It's to tell the story. This bread, every time you taste it, it should remind you his body broken for me. Communion is a way that we, I, I hear kids in here and I love it because it's a way that we tell our children the story. This is his body. And maybe you don't know it yet, but it was broken for you. And it was broken for me. And, and we drink the cup and we go, because of his blood, we've been purchased, redeemed, bought back, adopted in. He is our God and we are his people and then we begin to look forward to coming days. Jesus even said at the end there, it can be a little cryptic. I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day that I come. And when I, or excuse me, uh, vine, until that day, when I drink it in a new way in the kingdom of God. Many believe that's talking about in Revelation 19, the, the marriage feast of the lamb. The day that all promises are fulfilled. And it's kind of this wedding feast where we are finally brought into the kingdom. Like we, we see it now as a shadow, but when we see it as it truly is on that day and the feast that will happen, and Jesus goes, man, look back, remember what I've done for you, but also let this remind you to look forward to how I'm still fulfilling every one of these promises. And we have this gift of communion. Communion is meant to be an experience. Time to reflect, time to praise the Lord for what he's done, time to pour out our hopes to the Lord and go, Lord, how are you going to continue? Because through your body and your blood, you've made promises that I can trust, that I can stand on. And so we're going to take communion this morning to end our service. But I want to go to a passage that I, I reference a lot, but I, I want to take the time to read it now um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's the Apostle Paul talking, uh, teaching the church in Corinth about communion because they had been misusing it. It had become this power thing. Uh, we get communion, you don't get communion because we're first tier, you're second tier. And uh, they'd been abusing one another through it. And so Paul, trying to set them straight, says this. For I have received from the Lord what I, pa what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
or excuse me, in an unworthy way, will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself in this way. He should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. I don't want to miss that last line. Paul was actually telling them, you have people that are sick among you. You have people that have died from your body because they disrespected communion. That's a weird thing for us as Americans. We're like, yeah, it's just something you do. And ah, you don't want to make God mad and take it wrong. But like, this is how seriously the Lord takes the act of communion Paul was saying, some of you are sick, even now today. Some of you have died because you took communion in an unworthy way. That should give us pause. I'm not trying to scare anyone out of communion, but I want us to take it in a worthy manner. I want us to come to the communion table with respect and honor. And one of the things we talk about each month when we take communion is an unworthy manner doesn't mean if you've ever sinned. It doesn't mean if you've sinned this month, this week, or even this morning, oh, you're disqualified, sorry. What it means is for those who proclaim the Lord's death, Jesus, you died in my place so that I could live. It is unworthy to hold on to my sin and to celebrate his death for my sin at the same time. It can't happen and God will not be mocked. And so exactly as Casey had pointed out earlier, exactly as those disciples were reflecting before the first communion of going, Jesus, is it me? Would I do something like that to you? That we even now are to come and examine ourselves. Lord, is there sin that I'm holding on to? Are there things you're calling me to lay down that I'm saying no to? Are there things you're calling me to pick up that I'm saying no to? If so, forgive me, Lord. Even now in this place, repent. As the scripture says in Acts 3, that times of refreshing would come from the Lord and that we'd be able to celebrate what he's done in a worthy manner. So I'm going to ask the music team to come up and we're going to spend just a few minutes in silence and stillness examining our hearts, inviting the Lord to examine our hearts. Is there anything between you and me? If so, now is the time. Today is the day. Let's deal with it so that we can celebrate, remember what the Lord has done, and look forward to fulfilled promise in the future. Lord Jesus, may we have a, a holy discontent, God, for anything that stands between us and you. May we see you so clearly. May we be so in love with you 
that we would let nothing stand between us. God, if you have spoken anything to any hearts this morning, I pray for boldness, for repentance. God, that each of us would be more than willing to turn from that which kills us to the one that brings us life. May we truly celebrate what you have done, are doing, and will continue to do this morning. Your death in our place, your blood cleansing us, something we could never do ourselves. We are beyond grateful, God. May you be worshipped and praised this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.